Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week is coronavirus getting out of control. And uh, we don't have enough testing capacity uh, now. Boris Johnson's Brexit gamble. It's my view uh, that the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland essentially answered the wrong question. And how difficult is Rishi Sunak's upcoming budget? But I hope he will be reassured that throughout this crisis, I've not hesitated to act in creative and effective ways to support jobs and employment and will continue to do so. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Waugh. Hi, Arj. Hello, Rachel Wearmouth is back after the summer break. Hi, Arj. Hi. Hiya. And we're delighted to be joined by the Conservative MP for Sedgefield, Paul Howell. Yeah, good to be here. Hi, Paul. Uh, you're on a train, which is a first for, for this podcast, certainly. <laughs> well, um, yeah, well, and it's one of the uh, nice new shiny Hitachi Azumas from my constituency. So that's a nice little plug as well, isn't it? E- excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, Boris Johnson was forced to admit this week that there are coronavirus testing shortages as more regions get put into lockdown and fears of a full-on second wave grow. The entire northeast was the latest area to be put under COVID-19 restrictions, which include a 10pm curfew for hospitality venues. And there is grave talk of nationwide restrictions if the new rule of six fails to get infections under control. Jacob Rees-Mogg, however, appears unconcerned by the lack of tests. Here he is. But the issue of testing is one where we have gone from a disease that nobody knew about a few months ago to one where nearly a quarter of a million people a day can be tested. And the Prime Minister is expecting that to go up to half a million people a day by the end of October. And instead of this endless carping, saying it's difficult to get them, we should actually celebrate this phenomenal success of the British nation in getting up to a quarter of a million tests of a disease that nobody knew about until earlier in the year. That is a success of our scientists, our health experts, and of our administration. And yes, there's demand for more. Yes, supply exceeds, um, uh, demand succeed, exceeds supply. But it is growing, the supply is increasing, and what has been done is really rather remarkable and something we should be proud of. Uh, Paul, is Rhys Mogg right? Should we all stop carping on about the testing shortage? That's Paul War. <laughs> well, to be fair to Rhys Mogg, I think what he was doing was suggesting that Labour are the ones carping. But unfortunately, the way he said it in the chamber made it sound as though the public were carping because they couldn't get a test. And I suspect that actually he might come to regret that sort of the way in which it came out. And we may well have some sort of clarification uh, later today from him or from number 10. Um, Number 10 certainly didn't want to engage with it and sounded uh, slightly nervous about the whole thing. But the, the bigger picture is, you know, uh, the testing problems that, are, that NHS Test and Trace is undergoing at the moment. We've just seen some brand new statistics this morning, which were, we put on our front page from NHS Test and Trace, which suggests that actually um, the turnaround times have really plummeted just in one week alone. There were 66% of people would get their 
their tests within 24 hours uh, a week before, but now it's 33%. And that's a big, big drop. Even the government are not pretending that that's not a big deal. They said it's a significant and notable drop um, in performance. And so I think when we hear Baroness Dido Harding, who's the head of NHS Test and Trace, talk about it later today. Um, she's got some serious questions to answer. Um, and, and it's not just today. I think it's the next few days. We'll see just how much a big problem this is. Yeah. And Rachel, uh, Health Secretary Matt Hancock um, has been out defending the government's record on testing this week, but he's been saying some slightly controversial things. Yes. Um, both. Um... Matt Hancock and the Prime Minister have kind of suggested that the testing shortages are, are, are largely down to people who, are, who don't have cyst symptoms um, trying to get tests so they can go about their, their, their usual business, like as though they're sort of preemptive tests to check that they're okay. But that's kind of um, something that's quite difficult to, to stand up and, and say that's the case because of just you know, if you, how do you know if people have symptoms or not? It's kind of down to the individual to say. And also, that they were very much and have always been encouraging people to to get tests because of the whole fact that there's an asymptomatic cases of coronavirus that it's very difficult um, for them to roll back on it now and say, oh, well, people shouldn't be getting tests if they don't have symptoms. So, yeah, it's made a lot of people quite angry. Yeah. Paul Howell, you're, you're on your way back to your constituency in the northeast. Um, what, what's your reaction to the news that it's being put into restrictions and what's the testing situation like there? Well, I mean, clearly it's disappointing that, it's, uh, that, that there's a need to put it back into, uh, into restrictions. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, from what I can gather, it, it does seem you know, a most appropriate action, though. When you start to see things rise, um, you know, I think the, the phrase that was used earlier on in the whole discussion was whack-a-mole, wasn't it? You know, that uh, you've got to hit them and keep them in place whilst uh, and stop the spread of, of where things are at. And, you know, like anywhere else, um, you know, we get questions of, uh, you know, local constituents who's uh, had significant travel to do and uh, or have been directed in that sort of way. Is it your sense that it is a down to people who don't have symptoms trying to get tests or do you think the problem is, is deeper than that? I think it's, it's 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 difficult to ascertain that, Rachel. As you said, how do you know as, as to whether it's just people being overcautious and too many people wanting a test, or or, or is it people that are feeling that they've actually got um, symptoms that mean that they, they need a test? I think it's natural that um, you know as the, as the schools have gone back, there's more people interacting um, there, and you know if, if, if the child's got a sniffle or something, or oh, well, whilst we're going, we might as well get the family done. Could be, could be. You know, I'm not saying it is, but could be. You know, one of the drivers on it. I mean, from what I understand, you know, we've got uh, you know some of the highest testing rates in in Europe, sort of thing, uh, in, in terms of pushing the things out. But it's still obviously not delivering enough and in, in, enough and in, in the right places. So, you know, we've got to continue to, even though there's a lot of effort going in right across the piece, we've got to do a bit better. Paul, how do, do you think the government could have anticipated this, this surge in demand? They knew schools were going to reopen. They pretty much knew that they were going to try and encourage people to get back to the office come September, yet the testing capacity isn't there. I'm sure they did anticipate that there was going to be an increase in demand. And as you're well aware, there's, there's, there is significant increases in testing being put in place. Um, but there's, all, you know, there's always going to be hotspots in terms of where you know, the particular testing is demand is higher than, uh, than what's been available. And you know, 
however much you try, there's going to be people that miss. But uh, we, it, we've got to make every effort to make sure that there's as few of those as possible and that we deliver as much as possible as quickly as possible. Um, Paul Ward, just just big picture on this. We've got the whole northeastern restrictions. We've got pretty much Greater Manchester in restrictions. We've got the West Midlands facing some restrictions, Yorkshire facing some restrictions. Are we kind of heading back into an effective national lockdown here? Well, the Prime Minister made clear at Liaison Committee yesterday on Wednesday that actually he didn't want another national lockdown. He hates the idea of a national lockdown. The whole strategy has been to have this whack-a-mole approach with lots of local lockdowns. But when you get so many moles popping up everywhere and having to whack each one of them, then it does look like, you know, there is a national problem. And I think as of today with the Northeast, one in seven of the British population uh, will now face severe restrictions. You know, that's quite a lot of people. Um, so I think um, at some point the PM may have to look at, do we do we have some sort of nat national approach to it? Because it's just simpler in terms of messaging and messaging is everything in combating coronavirus. Yeah, Paul, Paul Howell, it seems like the government is basically operating on a kind of infection budget. So we, we, we close down pubs or introduce a curfew in pubs, which allows children to continue to go to school. Um, but do you think maybe it's time to, to revisit the, the advice that, that everyone should go back to the office um, ahead of maybe uh, introducing curfews on pubs or even closing them, which, which is being talked about? Personally, no. I think um, you know that you know if, if you're going to you know, take a, if you're going to make choices as to you know which pieces of the jigsaw you you pull away on, then surely it should be the social elements first. You know we, we need to have an economy. We need to have um, things working um, as as best we can within safe regions and safe safe remits. Sorry, um, but you've got to remember as well. I mean we're talking about you know the lockdown in the northeast as if it was like the lockdown we went into back in March. You know, the level of restrictions in that are inconvenient, absolutely, and they'll affect some people more than others. But to call it a lockdown in the same sort of terminology as what we had when we had a complete lockdown, I don't think it's appropriate. I think we need to uh, be cognizant of the fact that this is an attempt to keep the world turning whilst, um, you know, whacking them all, so to speak. It's been another big week in Brexit with the PM climbing down on his controversial internal market bill by offering MPs a veto on the law-breaking powers within it. It looks to be enough to stave off a major Tory rebellion, but it did not save Johnson from another embarrassing resignation of a senior government legal figure. This time it was Lord Keane, the Advocate General for Scotland. In a pointed resignation letter, Keane said Johnson faces challenges on a number of fronts and voiced his fears that the law-breaking bill will not make these any easier. The PM, meanwhile, continued to fire broadsides at the EU. Let's listen. Do that. So still are they negotiating in good faith? And so I'm afraid, alas, you as, don't as I've said, I don't believe that. You don't. So why did the Northern Ireland Secretary tell the Northern Ireland Affairs Select Committee that, in his opinion, the EU is negotiating in good faith? Well, I, there, it is always possible that Which is the um, it is view. always possible that I am mistaken, and perhaps right. uh, they will, uh, perhaps, uh, uh, perhaps they will, they will, they will prove my suspicions wrong, and perhaps they will agree in the joint committee uh, to uh, uh, to uh, withdraw the some of the extreme suggestions that uh, I've heard, and uh, and all will be well. But in, in, until such time, I prefer to have protections that guarantee 
the integrity of this country and, uh, and protect against the potential rupture of the United Kingdom. Uh, Paul, uh, we talked about this last week. Uh, are we any clearer on what Johnson is up to with Brexit and the internal market? Because there have been some reports coming out of Brussels about a compromise over fish. Yeah, well, as we've talked about before, I think the Prime Minister, on a political level, has made this crude calculation that, look, if he pitches this as, look, whose side are you on? You're on are you on my side or are you on Brussels' side? Then that's how he's going to sell it to voters, whether in the red wall seats or non-red wall seats. That's how he's doing it politically. Um, his aim is to put pressure on the EU. You can get that, that's for sure. But what's happened with this compromise with some of these backbenchers is that despite the compromise, um, you could say that some of these backbenchers have backed off more than the PM because ultimately breaking international law is still in there even in this amended form of the bill uh, and we're told by number 10 today that actually it will run in parallel with um, any attempt at arbitration with the eu so it's not what some of the rebels wanted which is look they wanted the arbitration to be exhausted before we go down breaking the law route actually it's going to happen at the same time so the government's sort of keeping its options open in other words if in the middle of the negotiations it thinks things aren't going the right direction it'll it'll use this safety net and so um, it sounds like number 10 really although on the face of it have calmed some of their backbenchers are really not backing down so the big question is, what will the EU do next? And it doesn't look like they're going to take kindly to it. Yeah, Paul Howell, how, how worried are you by the law-breaking plans and, and, and the breakdown in relations it seems to have caused between the UK and the EU with regards to trade talks? Are you concerned about the potential impact of no deal in Sedgefield particularly? Yeah, I'd be to take them in reverse order. Um, I don't want a no deal. I think absolutely I'd uh, very much prefer us to get a deal. I know that we're... Uh, working very hard to try and deliver that. And uh, it, it's an outcome that I would very, very much want to want to see uh, in terms of where we're at. Um, in terms of um, relations between us and the EU, um, it doesn't seem to matter from one week to the next what the rhetoric is. It, uh, you know, I spent many years um, working as a procurement director and, uh, and going through these sort of things. I'd hate to have been doing my negotiations with uh, you guys and the rest of the press trying to second guess the reaction of me, my colleagues, my um, suppliers, my customers and trying to say, okay, well, yeah, no, you've fallen out, haven't you? No, we haven't. You know, we, it's just a natural stage of a negotiation process. Uh, and, you know, I, I really, I despair. I really, I'm not sure I would want to be in the middle of those discussions just because of uh, the way it's, you know, it, it's been second guessed all the way through. So I've, I really don't know um, how much we've actually fallen out. Have we, we might have, I don't know. Um, it's what's been presented in the press though. So we'll leave that one in that place, if you like. Um, as regards to the law breaking, um, I think it's a case of who blinks first, isn't it? I mean, the argument is that um, the reason for putting it there is because of the potential for the EU to be acting in full faith and, um, and therefore by definition of themselves stepping away from the agreement. You know, there's various treaties that have been, um, you know, ignored by, you know, everybody from Germany, France, etc., throughout uh, uh, recent times. So it's about how portrayed. I don't know whether, I certainly don't think it was appropriate to, um, I think it's got more more play than it probably deserves in terms of the significance. And that's probably driven by the fact of what a certain minister said at the uh, dispatch box, you know, and that's uh, put it into a place. But, uh, you know, it's, it's never a good place to, to be contemplating breaking the law, but we haven't broken any laws yet. 
it's, I think it's just, in my opinion, it's putting a strong statement there that we will do what we need to do to keep these negotiations in the right place as regards to trade within, uh, within the internal market. Our internal market, not the European one. Um, Rachel, Labour's been interesting on, on Brexit during this whole saga. They, they haven't wanted to go too heavy on it. You know, Ed Miliband's speech the other day, etc. Do you think that Ed Miliband's speech in which he tore Boris Johnson apart over the uh, internal market bill helped Labour at all, especially in areas like uh, polls? Um, I, I think... I think sort of it, it, certainly most Labour MPs is what I hear is it was very good for morale because they seem to they feel like they're starting to recover some of their credibility on the on the issue and it's about it's about being an effective opposition and holding the, the government to account I think when Starmer sort of finally did speak out on on Brexit it wasn't you know um it, it, you didn't get a lot of the same response you might have gotten to Jeremy Corbyn which would be you know we've got to stop this damaging, reckless, Tory, no deal situation. He's, his his response was, let's get a Brexit deal done and focus on um, coronavirus. So it was kind of like giving the Prime Minister's words back to him. It's a very, very different approach, yeah. Yeah, one point I wanted to make, though, was actually, although Ed Miliband's speech did well online amongst a certain group of Labour supporters, um, you know, I think there was quite a few people within the PLP, the Labour Party, who were thinking, oh, hold on a tick, has he gone too far? Do we sound like the old Labour Party? This is not the Keir Party. And someone quite senior said to me, look, Miliband, as much as he had a bit of Millie fandom about that speech, one thing he failed to say properly was get Brexit done. The, which is the line that's the line from Keir Starmer and Miliband didn't deliver it as much as he's got all these plaudits he, he failed on that strategic ambition um, well the fate of both Brexit and the coronavirus hang heavy over Chancellor Rishi Sunak's upcoming budget Sunak is under pressure to find cash to plug the financial black hole left by the Covid recession as well as finding ways to continue supporting sectors which cannot open due to virus restrictions Paul Howe, meanwhile, is one of many key Tory MPs behind efforts to get Sunak and Johnson to deliver on the levelling up agenda, having set up a new parliamentary group on left behind communities over the summer. The Chancellor, meanwhile, this week suggested he was working on something to follow up furlough. Let's have a listen. Mr Speaker, as ever, I'm grateful for the uh, advice from my honourable friend. Uh, he, he is right that businesses do need support, which is why many of the interventions that we have put in place last through to next year, for example, the business rates holidays and indeed our support for the economy and jobs through initiatives like our stamp duty cut to catalyse housing market. But I hope he will be reassured that throughout this crisis, I have not hesitated to act in creative and effective ways to support jobs and employment and will continue to do so. Uh Paul, Sunak's comments were interesting this week, um, but how tricky a budget is this going to be for him? It's going to be very difficult. I mean, obviously, up, up until now, everyone's loved Dishy Rishi. Um, you know, you even see out adverts outside restaurants near here saying Rishi the Second uh, is one of the uh, puns on one of the blackboards I saw outside a restaurant saying they're going to continue his eat help out, out to help out deal for the rest of the month. So he's very popular because of that. He's, he's entered the public consciousness. But that's all the easy stuff. Paying out furlough makes you popular. Uh, paying half price meals makes it popular but actually withdrawing support obviously is the tough stuff and and that's really what chances are all about they're all about saying no rather than yes and i think what was interesting about those comments was he talked about being creative um 
we think that there's not going to be a straight light for like sort of version that Labour wants of some limited version of furlough. It may well be things like national insurance cuts for employers, the sort of stuff that employers have been saying for a long time. Look, this is the real way to help us out and to hire people. Um, in fact, if there was some sort of long term cut to national insurance for employers, then that that could be quite interesting. Um, Paul, how are you worried what lifting furlough will mean for your constituency and in the context of your APPG on left behind communities? What do you want to see from the Chancellor in the upcoming budget? I think there's always a worry as to when you when you withdraw any type of support as to as to where things are. But you know, we, we have to, you know, at, at the end of the day, as we already discussed a few seconds ago, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, support put into the economy. And uh, at, at some point in time, that's got to be paid back. It's got to be recovered and you, you've got to stop at some point um, as to how it's done. And, you know, I, I, it's interesting, as you say, to hear the words creative. Uh, you know, he's, he's been uh, exceptional so far in terms of the creativity and things that is coming, you know, notably with the uh, Eat Out to Help Out. And as you say, there's um, you know, a number of organisations are taking that on in uh, a limited way to do encourage people to, to continue. Um, very impressed with what I've seen of, uh, of, of Rishi so far in, in the role, considering how little time he had in the role before we got uh, with, uh, quite a significant thing for him to deal with thrown on his desk. So we'll see what he, what he comes out with. In terms of um, you know, the, the APPG, I mean, one of the things that we, we try to discuss on that or try to think about on that is you know, where we was, we, this was formed before we had COVID. It's not because of COVID that we're looking at these communities. Now, we were looking at these communities before that, uh, and what we want to do, you know, clearly is to make sure that you know the the agenda we have in terms of trying to pre, you know, improve opportunities for life outcomes in these communities, it still happens. You know that we do engage with the, you know, leveling up agenda. But these communities don't need to go back to where they were pre-COVID. They need to go to somewhere a damn sight better. Uh, Rachel, we were, we were kind of talking about it then, but Keir Starmer's ma been making a big play to win back uh, red wall seats like Paul Howells, famously wants Tony Blair's safe seat. Do you think people in areas like that are coming back to Labour? What do, what do you think they'll think of Starmer's insistence that furlough must continue for some sectors? Um, I think they've tried to, I think Labour has tried to keep the message on the furlough quite nuanced rather than just saying, oh, extend it, you know, um, a blanket extension. They've tried to um, try, sort of try, try to tread both paths, if you like, so that they don't fall into the trap of just being the party that calls for more money for everything all of the time. But there's, there's quite a few things going on, I think. I mean, um, I think it was Deborah Mattinson from Britain, Britain Thinks this week said that while Keir Starmer's individual polling is, is recovering, that most red wall voters might be in some way disappointed with, with Boris Johnson so far, but they still are supporting the Conservatives and wanting the Conservatives to do well. And I think um, when you hear what Labour is trying to say on on each issue that comes up, there seems to be a recognition of that central point that um, they don't want to be, you know, at the very far end of the the opposition to, to Boris Johnson being very overly dramatic all the time. So I think it just seems to be about a foundation for them for rebuilding credibility rather than um, an, an assumption that they're in a position to win back a lot of red wall areas right now. Right. Well, on that, we, we've managed to get through the podcast almost with paul on a train but uh let's time for the quiz 
Yay! This week is all about the revelations in political memoirs in honour of the new book by Sasha Swire, the wife of Tory former minister Hugo Swire. So uh, just shout the answer if you know it. Uh, question number one. Former PM David Cameron once told Lady Swire not to walk ahead of him because her perfume was affecting his what? God, I've got no idea. Big news today, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've read it somewhere. It was... Uh... It's libido we... almost, I would have said. If, uh... I was going to say that, but I didn't yeah. want to sound rude. <laughs> and did, did, yeah. did, didn't yeah. you want to push her in the bushes and said, yeah, I'll it, give you one? It was. That, 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 I read similar. Whether it was right or not, I don't know, but I read similar, yes. Yeah. Um, do you know what? I'm going to give both polls a point for that because uh, Cameron said, Lady Swire's scent was affecting my pheromones. Uh, <laughs> He carried on. It makes me want to grab you and push you into the bushes and give you one, is what David Cameron said, and then didn't deny another interview. I'm sure uh, he meant to give her a bouquet of flowers. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> so point each for the polls. Uh, question number two: Buckingham Palace was unimpressed with Cameron's own memoirs when they were released last year. Why? Because he quoted something the Queen had said in a personal discussion. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. Um, he basically revealed the details of a conversation in which he asked the Queen to raise an eyebrow against Scottish independence during the 2014 referendum campaign. And the Queen did just that, uh, asking people to think very carefully about the future. Uh, question number three. Alistair Campbell revealed in his memoir that Tony Blair once joked about shooting a cabinet minister during a meeting of his top team. But which minister was it? Oh, God. Good question. It can't be Gordon Brown. Um, was it Ron Davis? <laughs> I have no idea. You have to give yeah. us a clue, Arge. It was a woman. Oh, Claire Short. Yes, well done, yeah. Paul War. Oh, it's a draw then. It's a two-all draw between the two Pauls. How fitting. What great symmetry. Um, <laughs> it was Claire Short. As Campbell recalls, she was rabbiting on in a cabinet meeting and the spin doctor passed Blair a note about the time Saddam Hussein shot his health minister at a meeting because he was annoying him. And did Blair want to get him want him to get a gun? Yes, Blair replied. So <laughs> there you go. Crikey. Pretty nasty stuff, really. <laughs> well, on that, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review. Please also check out Running Mate, our fantastic podcast on the US elections, which is aimed at Brits. And get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with Tory MP Craig McKinley's bold attempt to justify the law-breaking powers in the internal market bill. Now, Mr Deputy Speaker, I'm going to talk about fists. We all have them. They're potential weapons for illegal acts, if we use them wantonly or recklessly. But we don't, so they're not.